All right. I'll say it again. I'm delighted to finally be starting a book study. Exposition of books of the Bible is overwhelmingly my preferred mode of teaching and preaching. Uh, it's what I've always done in, in Bible study and discipleship context. But because my preaching opportunities over the years that I've been at CBC have generally occurred one or two messages at a time, I've mostly done topical messages uh, and haven't been able to do book studies predominantly. So I'm happy to say that that change is starting today. God is kind. <laughs> By the way, I would appreciate your input as to whether uh, the PowerPoints help or distract or if there's something I need to do differently with them. I think they've been valuable when presenting topical messages that are kind of broad in scope and have to bring in a lot of scripture from a lot of places. But I'm not absolutely convinced that they help in the context of a book study. So you guys email me, text me, call me, uh, let me know. It is uh, both an amazing privilege and a daunting task to teach and preach through the book of Romans. Uh, so I earnestly ask for your prayers as we proceed. The importance of this great epistle cannot be overstated. Uh, countless people have been saved by the work of the Holy Spirit through the words in this book. Through the book of Romans, God pierced the heart of Martin Luther and convinced him that justification in God's eyes is received only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, apart from works. In the preface to his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther uh, has this to say about this epistle. He said, This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel, and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. To that I say heartily, Amen. As for me, God brought me from darkness into light, largely through the words in this very epistle. Through it, God made it infinitely clear to me that I was helpless to make myself acceptable in the eyes of a holy God by any kind of works that I could muster up. Uh, he showed me that the only righteousness that would make me able to stand in his presence is that which comes only by faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. When I was a young believer, I spent a whole lot of time in this epistle. <laughs> in fact, I had to tape pages from the book of Romans back into the binding of my first two Bibles because I wore them out so badly. And I still, to this day, I've got you know pages that look like this uh, <clears throat> in the book of Romans. As I shared the gospel with other people and as I had to defend my faith and as I got more familiar with other portions of Scripture, I found over and over that this epistle answered so many of my own deepest questions and the questions that other people posed to me about God and God's Word. Questions about sin, about righteousness, about God's calling and choosing about God's purpose in evil and painful things, about the battle between the flesh and the spirit, about the very real freedom that we have from the power of sin as children of God, about the importance of choosing what we set our minds upon, 
about the immeasurable steadfastness of God's love toward us in Jesus Christ and about His amazing grace which we possess, uh, by which we possess all that He has for us. A grace that is utterly undeserved. The words righteous and righteousness occur 41 times in Romans combined. The word grace occurs close to 25 times. That's roughly twice as often as either of those words occurs in any other New Testament book. And the words faith and believe, which are from the same Greek root, occur over 60 times in Romans, surpassed by only one other book in the New Testament, and that's the Gospel of John. Now, word count isn't everything, but it gives us a good feel for which ideas are most repeated in a book, and it helps us to identify its themes. As we'll see, the righteousness of God, the grace of God, and the faith by which both of these attributes of God come to bear on our lives are among this epistle's most central themes. By way of background on this great book, Paul's epistle to the Romans uh, was, by most accounts, written around 57 to 58 A.D., while he was in Greece for three months, most likely in the city of Corinth, toward the end of his third missionary journey. That three-month stay in Greece is recorded in Acts chapter 20, verse 3. Paul had never, up to the time of the writing of this epistle, visited the church at Rome. He had never been there. He had not yet gotten to meet the believers to whom he was writing this letter. But the church that God had raised up in Rome was very dear to the heart of Paul. According to Romans 15, verses 20 to 29, Paul had longed for for many years to, to go to this church, and he was planning to travel to Jerusalem to take to that church a contribution from the saints in Macedonia. And then from Jerusalem, he hoped to travel to Spain because Spain to him was an unreached area and he he was committed to going where the gospel had not yet been heard. So he told the Romans, on the way to Spain, I intend to come and visit you. And Paul did not make it to Rome in the manner in which he had planned. He was arrested at Jerusalem and he was brought to Rome in chains to stand trial before Herod because he had appealed to Herod as a Roman citizen. He did eventually end up at Rome, and God granted him a powerful impact in Rome, even among the household of the emperor. But he did so through Paul as a prisoner of the Roman Empire, not as a free man. All right, that's background. Now, here's here's where we're going this morning. We're going to look at Paul's introduction of the epistle in the first seven verses in which he presents the writer, the subject, the goal, and the audience of the epistle. We're going to see Paul's commendation and prayer for the Roman church in verses 8 through 15. And then we'll see Paul's declaration of the heart of his message or theme in this epistle in verses 16 and 17. First, the introduction in the first seven verses. The writer, the subject, the goal, and the audience. Paul begins the epistle with his name, Paul, 
a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He says three things about himself. He is a bondservant of Christ Jesus, he is called as an apostle, and he is set apart for the gospel of God. Paul makes it eminently clear at the very outset that he is a claimed man. He is not doing any of this for his own purposes. By the working of God, Paul is a slave of Christ with no desire to be otherwise. He is called, he is set apart. He said he was called as an apostle, and the word apostle means messenger or one sent with a mission. Paul, along with the other apostles, was mightily used by God for the establishment and the nurturing of the early church. And in Paul's case, God commissioned him to focus on preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, we know that when Paul would go from city to city, he always went first to the synagogues and he brought the message to the Jews. But he had a unique commission by God to make sure that he brought this message to the Gentiles. Now, while the specifics of God's commission for Paul are unusual in some respects, like his apostolic role, Paul treats God's work of calling and choosing men and women to be slaves of Christ as the same for all Christians. The rest of this book makes it clear that when Paul says he's a bondservant of Christ set apart for the gospel of God, he doesn't see himself as unusual among Christians in regard to that assignment. He presents this glorious calling and this set-apart lifestyle as the normal Christian life throughout this epistle and through all of his other writings, exhorting all believers to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices to God. As those who have been buried with Christ in the likeness of his death and raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection to newness of life, in order that we who have been freed from sin may be slaves to righteousness. It's fundamental to understanding this great epistle that Paul doesn't see himself as different from the believers to whom he writes. He gives no quarter to the notion that the gospel of Jesus Christ is some kind of insurance policy that we can take in our back pocket and bring out when we think it's needed. He presents the gospel of God just as God declares it to be, as that which lays absolute claim on us and defines our identity and our purpose for existence as children of God and grateful bondservants of Jesus Christ every moment of every day. And throughout our study of this epistle, I believe it's helpful to understand the nature of God's calling of Paul and of the event of Paul's conversion. You may have read the story of his conversion in Acts chapter 9. If you haven't, please do. Because I think it's very important that we recognize Paul sees his conversion as definitive of how God works to save all whom he chooses to make his own. Paul doesn't treat his own spiritual transformation as unusual. He sees it as a template for how God always works to choose, call, regenerate, justify, and sanctify those whom he has determined to make his own. We're going to see this a lot in this book. 
When Paul later declares in Romans 9 that God's choosing does not depend on the, the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He speaks as always by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But that which he declares has been borne out in his own experience. If you read the account of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, there is no way that you can come away with any notion that Paul had anything to do with it. On the day of his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul's only interest in Christ was to seek out those who were followers of Christ in order that he might arrest them and drag them back to the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem to be tried and prosecuted. He was an enemy of Christ, and he harbored only hostility toward those who followed Christ. Paul did not seek Christ. Christ sought Paul. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him, physically blinded him while at the same time opening the eyes of his heart, and turned him around 180 degrees. On that very day, Paul went from being a militant enemy of Christ to being an ardent follower of Christ, yielded to whatever God required of him for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying Paul's conversion experience somehow skewed his understanding of how God might save other people. I'm saying Paul's experience informed his understanding of how God saves. God saved Paul in the manner that he did in order to prepare him to teach us about the nature of God's calling and choosing in every case. Critical truths that God presents in this epistle more forcefully than in any other book of the Bible. When God saved Paul, he stripped away all the clouds and he removed any doubt about who was doing the saving. Paul did nothing. He was dead spiritually. God did everything. Paul makes it clear later in this epistle that that's how God always works. Now, for some, it may appear that the man or woman or child being saved has taken some initiative toward God, has sought God. But when you get to Romans chapter 3, Paul says there is no one who seeks God, not even one. Romans 9, he makes the point perhaps even more forcefully clear. The reality is all of us who believe in Jesus were saved as Paul was saved. We brought nothing to the table. Uh, God did everything. That's called grace. Paul goes on, at, he declares in the first verse that the task to which he was set apart by God is the furtherance of the gospel of God. A message which he said God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now the word gospel means good news, right? And Paul says that the good news to which he was set apart is the news concerning God's Son. And Paul was eminently knowledgeable of the Old Testament Scriptures. He was a Pharisee, a member of one of the two ruling classes of Jews in his day. Acts 22, verse 3 says, Paul was educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. When Paul declared in Romans 1 verse 2 that the Holy Scriptures 
delivered through the prophets, spoke of Christ, of the Son of God, he knew very well the scriptures about which he made that claim. Everything that Paul says in this letter is about the good news concerning the Son of God. And in the first four verses of the book, Paul makes some very powerful statements about Jesus. In verse 1, he refers to Jesus as Christ Jesus. And then in verse 3, as Jesus Christ our Lord. As we saw when we studied the Davidic covenant, the New Testament word Christ means the anointed one, the preeminent seed of David promised in Second Samuel chapter 7. The one who would come and rule on the throne of David in perfect righteousness and justice forever. To drive home this aspect of Jesus' identity, Paul says in verse 3 that Jesus was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. And then twice in verses 3 and 4, Paul calls Jesus the Son of God. He says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the Spirit of holiness. So he says Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh and he is the son of God according to the spirit. As the preeminent son of David, Jesus is perfect man. As the unique son of God, Jesus is fully and perfectly God. Perfect man and perfect God. Now Paul will have, he he speaks here about the flesh and the spirit, according to the flesh and according to the spirit. He's going to have a lot to say in this book about the flesh and the spirit. He will show us that in fallen men, the flesh and the spirit are two realms that are, that are constantly in conflict. But in Jesus, those two realms are in perfect harmony. And in Jesus alone, we will come to partake of that same harmony between the flesh and the spirit. In verse 5, Paul says that through Christ, we, which I take to mean Paul and those who were pursuing the the preaching of the gospel together with him, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. The essential goal of Paul's teaching, indeed the goal of his entire mission as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus, was to bring about the obedience of faith among all Gentile believers. Now, what is the obedience of faith? I believe the book tells us that it is the character of God worked out in men. It's the righteousness of God lived out in his people as the fruit of faith in Jesus Christ. We'll have a little more to say about that when we get to verses 16 and 17 in a moment. So, Paul has, uh, has revealed the, the writer himself, the subject, the gospel of God concerning his son, the goal of his writing, which is the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And now he says, the audience is those who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. Throughout the Bible, the word saints means Holy ones. It doesn't refer only to the folks pictured in stained glass 
in an ornate churches in Italy or on amulets that people hang around their necks. It does not refer only to believers who have some special gift or through whom God has performed some great miraculous work. God calls every single believer in Jesus Christ one of his holy ones, a saint made holy by him. We are all heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So this epistle is written to everyone in Rome who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, and by extension to everyone everywhere who fits that description. In verses 8 through 15, after this introduction in the first seven verses, Paul presents a commendation and prayer for the Romans, and this is very typical of how he opens his epistles. In verse 8, he expresses his thanks to God for the faith of the Romans. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. That's quite a statement. By the, based on what Paul had learned about the church in Rome by the time he wrote this epistle, his commendation of them focuses on this one attribute of godliness. He said that their faith was being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And that's, again, significant because Paul says in this epistle that all of godliness follows from faith. So these guys are definitely on the right track. And his focus on that attribute is very much in keeping with the theme of this epistle, which we'll get to in just a moment. After speaking of their faith... Paul told the Romans that he had been praying for them always and unceasingly and that he had been requesting of God that he might succeed in coming to them, in verse 10. His words make it clear that he had been desiring to come to see the Romans face to face for quite a long time. And then in verses 11 and 12, He explains his longing in coming to Rome, what it is that he wants to see happen. He says in verse 11 that he hopes to impart some spiritual gift to them that they may be established. And then in verse 12, he says he expects that the blessing of his coming to to visit the Romans will be mutual. It's going to work in both directions. He says he longs to come to them He says, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Now that spirit of genuine humility and that sense of parity, of equality under God with those to whom he is ministering is is certainly noteworthy for all who find themselves in position of leadership in the body of Christ or in any work of ministry. Anyone who doesn't firmly believe that the work of ministry goes both ways needs to find something else to do. (laughs) And Paul says that the encouragement that he's looking forward to giving to and receiving from the Romans would come as they witnessed one another's faith in Jesus Christ. Observing in each other real faith in God is a deeply encouraging thing, is it not? One of the most powerful things that you do to encourage other believers is to believe God. And one of the most discouraging things that you will ever do 
in your relationship with other believers is to distrust the promises of God. Do you want to be known as one who builds up the church instead of tearing it down? (laughs) Then believe what God says. Bank on it. Walk by faith and not by sight. In verses 13 to 15, Paul continues to explain why he's so eager to come to Rome. He says that he hopes to obtain some fruit among the Romans, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. In verse 14, he said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And so he then says in verse 15 that he's eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. His commission from God is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles without regard to their station in life. God already had granted him much fruit during the first two missionary journeys in the Gentile cities in Asia Minor, in Macedonia, and in Greece. And now he desired that God would grant him the same kind of fruit among the Romans. And when he says here that he's eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome, I believe he's speaking based on the context in a broader sense than just the believers in Rome. Um, You can look in chapter 15 when he talks about coming to the city. and he, He definitely seems to be speaking of the proclamation of the gospel as directed to unbelievers as well as believers. Now, I want to be clear, I I do think that the you he's talking about when he says to you who are in Rome includes the believers to whom this epistle is explicitly directed. So why would Paul be eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who already believe it? Well, Hang on to that question. I'll try to answer it momentarily as we get to verses 16 and 17. In the last two verses of this passage... Paul presents the theme of the entire epistle. And these are profound statements that he makes. He said in the first verse that he had been set apart for the gospel of God. He talked in verses 3 and 4 about Jesus Christ as the one who is the focus of that gospel. And he just told the Roman believers in verse 15 that he was eager to come their way in order to preach that same gospel. Now, as the foundation of everything else he's going to say in this letter, he declares he is not ashamed of the gospel, and then he explains why he is not ashamed. He says first that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And by the word Greek, he means the Gentile. It's not a new idea for Paul to say here, that the message, the Word of God, is imbued with transforming, life-giving power. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 55:11, So shall my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God, sorry, I got, got backed up there, says, For the word of God 
is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is breathed out by God. It is energized by the Holy Spirit, and it is powerful for the transforming of men's minds and hearts. And the Gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, is the theme of the Bible from cover to cover. So it certainly fits that description. When Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, I believe he's talking in very broad terms. He's talking not only about the heart of the gospel that he presents in 1 Corinthians 15, the death and resurrection and post-resurrection appearances of Christ. He's talking about the whole testimony of God's word concerning his son. Likewise, I don't believe he's talking here about salvation in a limited sense. He's not simply speaking about being justified, saved from the penalty of sin. He's talking about that full salvation by which we are saved from the penalty, the power, and ultimately the very presence of sin. The salvation in both state and standing by which we are made holy, and worthy of the presence of God. The reason I believe Paul is speaking in these broad terms is because he spends the rest of the book amplifying this thought, and he talks about salvation from every conceivable angle. And, of course, every bit of it was accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ. So the reason I believe Paul is eager to preach the gospel even to the believers in Rome is because the salvation that God accomplishes through the message of the gospel is a salvation that we all still need. God's miraculous work of salvation doesn't stop when we are declared righteous and assured a place in heaven. It continues day by day until the day that we stand glorified in his presence. So, the gospel... The whole declaration of God's word concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ is empowered by the Holy Spirit to save men in the fullest sense, indeed in every sense that matters. The effect of the gospel, Paul goes on to say in verse 17 that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And in the next breath, he hearkens back to the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2, verse 4, saying, As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, his declaration in this powerful verse is very far-reaching. And again, I believe it's critical to understanding where he goes in the rest of this epistle. The first part of the verse says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now, if there's one thing this book is most certainly about, it's the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel and manifested in God's people. As I mentioned earlier, the words righteousness and righteous occur a combined total of 41 times in this book, far more than in any other New Testament book. The matter of righteousness pervades the book. And it's imperative that we understand whose righteousness Paul is talking about. The focus of the epistle is on the righteousness of God. 
Now, I've, I've read and heard much discussion about the distinction between Pauline theology on the one hand and the theology presented in the gospel accounts on the other. I understand the point of those discussions, but personally, I think it's somewhat overdone. Let me explain. My understanding of the New Testament is heavily colored by my understanding of the Old Testament. And the approach of the Old Testament with regard to the standard of righteousness required by God is identical to that which pervades the teaching of Jesus during his earthly ministry and of Paul and the other epistle writers in all of the New Testament. Jesus didn't change the standard presented in the Old Covenant. He didn't raise the standard. He didn't lower the standard. He clarified the standard that had always existed. He vigorously shot down any notion that the Jews were meeting God's standard of righteousness. See, God's requirement of His people has always been the same. And it's stated in Leviticus 19.2, Therefore you are to be holy, for I, Yahweh, your God, am holy. And the measure of holiness that God requires is very simply His holiness, right? There is no other standard. We saw this very clearly in our study of the Mosaic Covenant several weeks ago. This is the exact same standard of righteousness and holiness presented by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, in which he starts by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not see the kingdom of God. And he finishes by saying, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. There is only one standard of righteousness required of us in Scripture, and it is God's righteousness. You will not understand this book if you don't understand that. If in the name of Pauline theology or any other theology we attempt to construe the teaching of God's word as demanding of us anything less than or other than God's own perfect righteousness, not just in position but in practice, then we will grievously violate fundamental doctrines of God's word. But our eyes must always be on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and not on ourselves. Because it is his righteousness alone and not ours that allows us to stand in his presence. This will come up often in our study of this book. Paul is entirely on the same page as Jesus with regard to how men are not saved and with regard to how men are saved. The key question that this epistle answers is, how do men come to meet God's standard of righteousness, both in position and in practice? As we'll see beginning next week, Paul is going to proceed, starting in chapter 1, verse 18, to explain how men do not come to be righteous in the eyes of God. He's going to shoot down any notion that men can muster up righteousness in and of themselves. And then... Starting in chapter 3, verse 21, he will explain how men do come to be righteous in the eyes of God by his doing. Here in chapter 1, verse 17, he sets the stage for that whole discussion with a simple summary statement that has profound importance to us as the chosen of God. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And those who are righteous live by faith. Now, there has been much 
agonizing in the commentaries about the phrase from faith to faith. I believe, and you can take it or leave it, I believe Paul is speaking very straightforwardly here. I don't see any big mystery in these words. I believe the second part of verse 17 informs the first. The declaration, the righteous shall live by faith, emphasis on the word live, is very much tied to the declaration, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We live by faith every day and every moment, just as surely as we came to faith, came to life by faith. Righteousness is the fruit of faith from beginning to end, from the beginning of the believer's experience to the end and every step in between. I see this as, as a lot like the Old Testament merisms. A merism is, is a, a simple little literary device by which you, you pose two things to represent the whole. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That doesn't mean he's not everything in between. Deuteronomy 6, when you sit down and when you rise up and when you walk by the way, three things posed for the whole entirety of the person's daily life. When you do those things, you, you speak of the things of the Lord to your children. From faith to faith, at every instance of faith, God's righteousness is revealed. Now, I think this is borne out by a couple of passages, this, this uh, idea. Uh, and but first, let me summarize it this way. I thought about these words for a while. Faith puts the righteousness of God on display at every point in the believer's life. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Paul said to the Colossian believers, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established, how? In your faith. Just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. You received Him by faith, you walk in Him by faith. In Galatians 3, verses 1 through 7, Paul gets a little animated. (laughs) Uh, He's confronting the Galatian believers from turning away from the life of faith to the works of the Judaizers. And he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit... Are you now perfected in the flesh, by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Faith, 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 faith. Righteousness came to you the same way it came to Abraham. All of us. By faith. And righteousness is being perfected in you that same way. By faith. The believer begins his spiritual life by trusting in the promises of God. And he walks by trusting in the promises of God. And he finishes by trusting in the promises 
of God. Everything that Paul says in this epistle, everything that God is at work to do in the life of the believer is accomplished from faith to faith. And the heart of that which he is at work to accomplish is to display his righteousness. Not to display it for passive observation, but to manifest it in power and in practice so that his righteousness marks and transforms those through whom it is manifested and those to whom it is manifested. The effectual display of God's righteousness through the believer's faith is where Paul goes in chapter 3 when he says in verses 21 to 25, and you'll notice four times in this verse, he speaks of the display, the manifestation of the righteousness of God. He says, apart from the law now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, he says it again, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So, our faith displays God's righteousness. How does that happen? How does our faith manifest the righteousness of God? Especially, how does it manifest it in an effectual, transforming way? I believe the answer becomes becomes evident given just a bit of meditation on the question, particularly in light of all that Paul has to say about God's righteousness in this book. Consider the approach that the heart of faith takes towards God's righteousness. First, without compromise or excuse, faith affirms that the one who is its object is perfectly righteous. That his character indeed defines for us what righteousness is. And then faith affirms the desperate absence of his righteousness in ourselves. In both of these respects, faith proclaims or displays the righteousness of God. Then when a person responds to the gospel in faith by the working of God, God declares that person to be righteous, justified, blameless in his sight. And the righteousness that makes the believer blameless before God is God's righteousness. So God's righteousness is put on display every time someone comes to faith in Jesus and becomes justified in the eyes of God. And then once faith has borne the fruit of imputed righteousness, it begins to bear the fruit of imparted righteousness. The same faith by which we are justified, when continually applied to that same wonderful object, bears the fruit of sanctification. Righteousness worked out in practice in the life of the believer. And that righteousness is God's 
as well. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Whose righteousness was at work in Paul? God's righteousness in Christ. At every point from faith to faith, our faith in Jesus Christ manifests powerfully the righteousness of God. That's why it's so important for us to believe what he says. And so we see that in the good news concerning Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is indeed revealed from faith to faith. That's our kickoff for this book. Next week, we're going to get into Paul's argument concerning the universal need of mankind for a Savior. I want to say to you guys, these next several messages will be inherently evangelistic in nature. That doesn't mean that only unbelievers need to hear it, right? (laughs) But if you have unbelieving friends or neighbors, be bold. Ask them to come. The worst they can do is say no thanks. The most energizing and abiding form of church growth is evangelism. And this book provides a great opportunity to expose your friends to the amazing gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would urge you to take advantage of that opportunity. It'll give you a whole lot to talk about with your friends and your, and your neighbors and your relatives if, if they're able to, to come. Now, I, I, let me be clear. We gather to scatter, right? The, the purpose of this meeting is not essentially evangelistic. But that doesn't mean that God can't use it for that purpose as he ministers to his children. So uh, think about that. Let's pray. Loving Father, thank you. Uh, thank you that, uh, <laughs> that you've given us this book, this epistle. Uh, it, it rocked my world when I was 16 years old. And it's been rocking it ever since. And I I know, Father, there are many in this room whose understanding of eternal things uh, have been revolutionized by uh, the words in in this marvelous epistle. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here, young or old, this morning, who has not simply trusted in Jesus Christ as the one and only Savior, in his death as the only payment for our sin, that he or she would do so even now. And I pray, Lord, for all of us who belong to Jesus Christ, that we would approach this book with, with a spirit of, uh, of awe, that, they would, that, that we would be, uh, and I certainly include me, that we would be receptive Lord, to what you want to show us in it, because it is powerful. It is powerful. And the salvation that you present in it is still at work every day in us. We pray these things in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, and we look for you to glorify him through us. Amen.